Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, Blurred Lines with Black Line and Blue Line. Today's episode is a first for me. I'm having two guests on the show at the same time. Blurred Lines is a podcast featuring conversations between two unlikely people, an African-American in his 20s who grew up on the rough streets of Memphis, Tennessee, and a white police officer originally from Arizona who now lives and works in the greater Nashville area. To preserve their anonymity, they go by the pseudonyms Black Line and Blue Line. How do I fit into this? Well, the two of them met and started their friendship at a screening of A Better Life that I did last year in Nashville. So we actually met at your event, uh, A Better Life. Uh, my, one of my professors told me about uh, this showing that was going on at Vanderbilt about atheism. Uh, and me just being a curious guy that I am, I wanted to know how, how did atheism work? Why do people think like that? And uh, I, 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 would just, I just wanted to know more. And so I went. I went by myself. And uh, Blue was there. Uh, and I asked a lot of questions when you guys had, a, 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 had the Q&A. Uh, and I guess the questions that I asked was interesting. And you answered a lot of, uh, a lot of them. Uh, and then we went out for a couple of drinks. And me and Blue actually had a nice conversation that night. Uh, and we became friends on Facebook. And there was a lot of things that he shared on Facebook that I liked. And there was a lot of things that I shared on Facebook that he liked. And then he reached out to me and said that, uh, would you, would you want to go out and, uh, have a drink and get some, grab something to eat? Uh, cause he wanted to pick my, pick my brain on some things. And I said, sure, of course. Uh, so we went out and, uh, what we talked about was I never had a conversation with a white person especially a cop, about the things that we were talking about, uh, first and foremost. Uh, and then when I went home, like, I had already wanted a podcast. I, I just didn't know what type of podcast I wanted, I, but I knew that I wanted a podcast because I'm a journalist. Uh, and then, like, a couple of days later, Blue posted, like, this long, like, status. I cannot, I really wish I could remember what it was, but I can't remember. Um, and I said, yo, I'm going to reach out to Blue. And I'm just going to ask him. If he say no, he say no. It was worth the try. I reached out to him. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And now we're here. <laughs> you know? That's great. And how long have you been doing the podcast for? We've been doing this since April 20th. Our first episode came out on 420. <laughs> it's very fitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was intentional for sure. Oh, good. <laughs> and... What caused you to want to start this uh, conversation, not only just between the two of you, but to have it be a public conversation as well? Um, I think Blue is a guy, he is somebody, not somebody, but he's a white person that that stands out from the norm. Uh, when we think of white supremacy, a lot of us black people, we include everybody who's white. Uh, we we never think about that one white person who 
Because even in slavery times, there were white people who would leave candles up in their windows to let slaves know if you were a runaway slave, you could stay here and hide out. I think if if we were still living in those times, I think Blue would be one of those people. And But now that we're living in 2018 and we can have conversations like that, uh, Blue was one of those people who I just thought our conversations needed to be recorded because he was teaching me so much about policing, case law, and I also was sharing him about, you know, uh, just about black culture. And I felt like that our conversations just needed to be recorded. And I thought that if people saw that if these two people from two different backgrounds can go have a talk uh, about these situations, then what you know, I think that 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 put that puts the uh, the responsibility on the people who are listening to actually go out and do the same thing. Let's talk about those backgrounds for a little bit. Blue Line, can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and how you got to be where you are today? Um, so yeah, just to reiterate what Black said real quick, um, it's thanks to you that we know each other and a better life and our mutual friend Cass Midgley. Um, so I, I just appreciate being on your show and, and the fact that really ultimately through you and Cass, this was all possible. Um, but anyway, yeah, what, what, what Black said is totally spot on. So we met at the, the viewing of your show, A Better Life. And afterwards, we went out for drinks, got to know each other, found out we had a lot in common and the friendship just grew from there. Um, I, where I come from is I was born in a, I was born in a medium sized town and then quickly moved to a very, very small town in Arizona. Um, I was born to extremely, uh, religious Christian parents. Uh, they were the non-denominational slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues variety of Christianity. And as all young children do, I of course bought it hook, line and sinker. And I myself became of course a vibrant Bible believing non-denominational Christian. Um, I lived that life for about the first 25 years of my life. Um, through those years, of course, I got to go to college because I I had grandparents who were, had means to send me to college for free. So with all my white privilege, I got a free education, uh, didn't struggle at all, didn't have to pay for anything. Um, all because I have a family that was able to provide that. Um, so I, you know, go to college, get a degree. Um, still don't know what I want to do for a living, so kind of randomly, once I graduated, I ended up in the mortgage industry doing mortgage banking, and I did that for 10 years. Um, ironically, the last about four to five years of that time, I spent auditing subprime mortgage loans, and in 2008, we all know what happened. The economy crashed, and it crashed largely because of the mortgage industry. Well, that left a very bitter taste in my mouth because I had just spent five years placing my stamp of approval on a bunch of subprime loans that everybody knew were bad loans. Um, I even knew at the time they were bad loans, but according to underwriting guidelines at the time, they were good loans. And when the market crashed and I realized I'd spent the last five years uh, contributing to that, I decided that that was a pointless way to spend my life. And I decided on a whim to do something different. And I thought policing would be a good thing to do. I thought that would be a way to really genuinely help people. So in June of 2008, I quit mortgage banking and went to the academy and became a cop. Um, during these years, I also was transitioning from the vibrant, born-again, Bible-believing Christian I had always been into a much more free-thinking, humanist, atheist, um, agnostic, whatever term you want to throw on there. 
that was not a quick process, obviously. Um, that took some years. But I was also moving away from the way I'd been raised to think and was beginning to think on my own. And where I find myself today is much more agnostic atheist. Well, fast forward to 2018, I've now been a cop for 10 years. And I'm basically right back where I was when I was a mortgage lender. I've now got some hindsight. And I've learned that while my intentions were good, I chose a profession that doesn't necessarily always lend itself to truly helping people. Um, policing can be a very noble and good profession, but because of certain laws and the ways that policing is done in America, it's actually extremely damaging. And I'm now right back where I was, kind of fed up with ways that I've contributed to a broken system. And so, you know, within the last... I moved from Arizona to the South, and when I got to the South, my eyes were kind of opened to some race, racial issues that I was not privy to in Arizona. Um, all the while, Trump becomes president, and racism just explodes. And over the last two years, I've become increasingly uh, upset with everything that I've seen. And so that was my impetus to contact Black, because I wanted to... This, this is what I want my cause to be. I want to help. I want to genuinely help people that are the most disenfranchised, and there's nobody more disenfranchised than black people in America. But I wanted to really genuinely do it for the first time because I got into mortgages with good intentions, and that didn't pan out. I got into policing with good intentions, and in many ways that hasn't panned out. So I really wanted to genuinely help. And I'm not, you know, I'm white. I have white perspectives. I come from a white background. So what do I know about what the black community me. I don't know anything. I need to learn from the black community. So that's why I reached out to Thomas about ways that he thought I could help in ways that I could be useful. And then he came up with the brilliant idea of the podcast and the rest is history. What about you, uh, Black Lion? Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up and what was that experience like to get you to where you are today? Yes, sir. Uh, I grew up on the south part of Memphis, uh, borderline of Walker Homes and the White Haven area. Most people call it Black Haven just because of the area, so I mean, black people. <laughs> um, but I grew up Church of Christ. Uh, I grew up, my mother my mother and my auntie and my grandmother basically raised me. Uh, my dad lived on, like, the other side of town. He lived in, like, the north part of town, and he eventually went to the Cordoba part of town, which is kind of, like, the nice area and things like that of Memphis. Uh, he he was just doing his own thing, not to like you know discredit my dad or anything like that. He he was in my life, um, but I I was mostly raised by my mother and uh, my auntie. My grandmother died when I was about about five, so I didn't really get to know her a lot. Uh, but we was mainly raised Church of Christ, uh, and I don't know if you guys know about Church of Christ, but uh, Church of Christ people believe if like if you don't go to that church then you're, you're still going to hell. Uh, they believe that's the, that's the church that Jesus basically wanted everybody to go to. And if you don't go there, you're not going to heaven or you're not saved. Uh, growing up in South Memphis was rough. You've seen a lot of things that, that, that went down. You've seen a lot of killings. You've seen a lot of gang culture. You've seen a lot of drugs. Uh, being moved inside the neighborhood. I stayed two doors down from a trap house, which meant, you know, drugs was coming in and out that house. Uh, but I learned 
uh, through that culture how to just maneuver through through life. Period. I I just uh, I learned how to uh, mind my business. <laughs> I learned how to communicate effectively with people through different languages. And actually, you know, I don't know if you guys consider ebonics a, a language, but there were certain terms and certain things that we would use to communicate that a lot of white people on the outside looking in wouldn't wouldn't understand. Um, so uh, you know, growing like I said, growing up there, it was it was very rough. Uh, but it it just it just made me who I am today. Uh, what transitioned was when I grew up. And I was able to move with my brother. My brother ended up going to Central Florida down in Orlando. And I moved down there with him for like a summer. And when I moved down there for a summer, I realized how different it was from from South Memphis. And I realized how people talk to each other and things like that, how they communicated. So I started to learn about just giving off uh just positive energy uh, from that area because people were so nicer from in the Orlando part from the South Memphis part because there's a lot of hatred in that in that environment. Uh, and so when I learned that, I, when I went to this Christian school uh, that I went to, uh, I started to learn that everybody's different and everybody grew up different and things like that. Uh, and so that just started to spark my interest in a lot of different things. And uh, I, I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I guess I gave a good brief description. Was it was it difficult for you not to fall into that culture of, of, of drugs in the community? What what kept you from going down that path? My mother, my mother, she she had a strict, not a strict like pad on us. She my mother was really really cool my mother had uh this thing about her where we could communicate with her about things but we never wanted to disappoint her me and my brothers we had sports was was our outlet we always realized that we well i ain't gonna say we realized but we always thought that sports would be our outlet to get money and uh, of course, that didn't happen. But my, my my oldest brother, he's actually playing professional basketball, so he's getting money through that. But um, I always was just focused on basketball, and uh, like we just we didn't we didn't want to get into we didn't want to get into the drug game or the gang culture because we didn't want to disappoint our mom um, because she was such she was such a cool person that I just felt like the disappointment of her would have hurt us like more than anything. And so you're in school now? Yeah, I'm in school right now, uh, trying to get a degree. <laughs> what are you studying? I'm studying journalism with a minor in PR. And what are your plans moving forward? My plans moving forward is just to c- continue to uh, to create my own brand. And I got a I got a I got a book that I wrote that I'm trying to like get off the ground and things like that. Um, and just continue to do things with Blue Line, you know, hopefully it, that pops up. <laughs> Blue Line, it must have been a unique experience for you joining the police force later than a lot of other people, I imagine. 
most cops don't have a career before they become cops. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. Um, I was always not your typical officer, even before I've, you know, as my career has progressed, I've confirmed that I'm absolutely not your typical officer. But even before that, I knew that I wasn't. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Most people go into policing right out of either high school or college. Um, they get a very early start on it and they do it for 20 to 25 years and then retire. Um, you know, to this day, my friends back home and my family still almost can't believe that I'm a police officer because it's just never been, I'm just not that kind of person. Um, I'm not, I'm not a domineering type personality. Um, I'm not a control freak. I was actually a skateboarder for my entire life. I played in bands, in rock bands, played drums. Um, you know, historically, skateboarders and cops don't even get along. Um, so it's a very, I'm a very uh, untypical police officer, and in many ways, not just the fact that I did it later in life. But I think that actually worked in my, to my benefit that I did it later in life, because I had a little bit of experience and uh, knowledge that typically wouldn't if you just jumped right into it. It must have been a bit of a learning curve for you, various things that you had to do as a cop, um, handling firearms. Was What was that process like for you? Yeah, I had shot before. Um, I was, I'm not a gun enthusiast at all. Um, <laughs> if we want to get into that topic, I've got some opinions there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm not a gun enthusiast. If I was not a police officer, I would not own them. Um, but I had shot. My, my father had some guns growing up, and my brother had some guns, and so I was not completely ignorant of them. Um, you know, I did, it's really not hard. It's, it's a, it's a skill that if you practice it, you get better at it. And most people can do it if they put the work in. Um, and I'm not uncomfortable around them. I just don't care for them aside from the fact that it's a tool of my trade. Um, you know, like I said before, I was never a typical cop prior to becoming a cop. I'd never been in a fight my entire life. Um, I, that's not how I resolve problems. Um, I think that communication and empathy and trying to understand people is a much better way to resolve things. Um, I don't think violence, I, there are times for violence, but I think the times are very, very, very few and far between. And I've kind of proven that in my police career. Um, I've been a cop 10 years. I've arrested lots and lots of people, and I've used violent force almost never. Um, I average probably less than one violent force encounter a year, which is pretty much unheard of. Wow. And have you enjoyed the experience of being a cop? Do you want to continue for for a long period of time? What is your feeling right now? Yeah, I've enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I want to, you know, there's a lot of problems in, implicit with policing, namely a lot of the laws that are on the books. Um, drug, drug offenses, for instance. Um, there's a lot of things that are illegal that are referred to as victimless crimes. And the best example of that is drug offenses. Mm -hmm. um, anytime anybody is arrested for a drug offense, the victim is listed as society because years ago, I guess we determined that drugs are bad for society, um, which begs the question, why is alcohol legal? Because that's also a drug and that's also terrible for society. But nonetheless, um, there are a lot of victimless crimes and a lot of police officers proactively look to find arrests but the only arrests that you can really genuinely proactively look for are nonviolent drug arrests. You can't, you can't proactively look for bank robbers. You can't proactively look for family fights. You can't proactively look for carjackers. 
All you can do is drive around, make traffic stops, find the odor of marijuana, search the car, inside a bunch of people for nonviolent crimes, possessing a weed that grows naturally. Um, I think that's problematic. I think there's racial components to that. I think the reason it is illegal to this day is largely racial, and I have a big issue with that. Um, I would like to transition into a more intellectual field of some sort. I hope to get a master's. I've already got my thesis. I just need to work, do all the hard work to accomplish it. And I would like to transition out of it at some point, but I don't know how that's going to look or if it's even possible. So for the meantime, I'm going to stay in policing and do the best I can to change it from the inside out. What do your fellow officers think about these ideas that you have about policing and, and the drug war and, and that kind of thing? Well, um, I'm in the minority big time. And if I were to voice it too much, I would probably be an outcast and not trusted. Um, so I don't actually, what I do is I model my philosophies in the way that I treat people and in the arrests that I make and and in the arrests that I don't make. Um, and those are the times where I can open up and show them in a very hands-on way the right way to do things. Instead of getting into a philosophical debate, um, I just behave a certain way. They see it. They ask questions. And that's a much better avenue to communicate these ideas. I, I don't overtly talk to them about it. Um, I, in fact, the reason that I'm called Blue Line is because I don't want them knowing about my podcast because mm-hmm. they took it. If they listened to it, they would disagree with the vast majority of it and it would affect my career. Um, now, I've been very successful in modeling these things, and I've, I've got my careers going fantastically. Um, everybody I work with likes me, and I like everybody I work with. And so my way that I do this has been successful so far, um, and I just hope that uh, I can genuinely make some change. I think, I think there will come a day where I can actually be much more vocal about these things um, as society kind of catches up, and it's, it's slowly going that way you know obviously more states are legalizing uh, marijuana for medical purposes even some are legalizing it for recreational purposes as society changes then my message will become more palatable and i think they'll be more more open to it so Blackline, in the course of your conversations that two of you have had together um has anything uh that blue line has said caused you to rethink or change any views that you had yes Everything he talks about about God, <laughs> uh, his <laughs> his his input on science always opens up my mind, uh, and I always uh, I, I've always questioned God, the theory of God. Uh, when when I first got kicked out of school, uh, I went through this whole phase of because I thought because like I said I went to a Christian college. And when I first got kicked out for doing the things that I were doing, you know, selling uh, marijuana, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing, uh, I got kicked out for that. And I thought that Jesus was like so mad at me and that I needed to get my life right. So I, I got baptized and then I devoted my like eight months of my life just being a hardcore Christian. And and through that process, when you when you read the Bible, of course, you want to know more about it. And you want to know how true it is. And so I started to research more and things like that. And so I went through a whole phase of just questioning my belief. And I'm still in that phase right now. Uh, and so meeting Blue and meeting you as well. Like like I said, like uh, your, your showing your, of your documentary kind of brought us together. 
Blue always says something that makes me just wonder, like, dang, is, is there any anything about God? Like, is, is is there a God? You know, I always had that 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 question when I talk to him. He's just so intellectual on that aspect for uh, uh, for a person who is wondering about God. He will make you sick and think about a God. So that's what I will say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did um, did anything surprise you, him being a cop, that, that you thought he would be one way based on kind of your preconception of what what cops were like that, that kind of changed how you viewed police officers? Yeah, of course. Um, I I didn't think police officers like black people at all. I didn't. I don't. I didn't. I didn't ever talk to police officers. Uh, even if, like, if that night that I talked to him, if he was dressed in his officer suit, I probably would never say two words to him. But the fact that he was in regular clothes and I saw him as a regular person, that's what made me open up to him. And he actually bought my beer that night, so you know uh, that was cool. But even if he was like dressed up. In his in his uh, officer suit, I probably wouldn't talk to him because, from my coach, we don't talk to police officers. Uh, we don't we don't want anything to do with them. We uh, we try to avoid them at all costs uh, because we know that things could go totally south if we talk to them, or we'd be looked at as a snitch if we talk to them as well. Now, my mother did raise me to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and no, ma'am, and yes, ma'am, to officers, but. I, I don't want anything to do with officers because of how they treat black people and how things can go for black people when the officer is approached. So, um, but him being him, uh, it definitely has changed my approach towards uh, officers. What about you, Blue Line? Has anything that um, Black Line has said caused you to think about things or change any views that you had prior to collaborating together? Well, absolutely. The reason I reached out to him is that I want to learn from him. Um, you know, we are extremely different. And that's why I think our podcast is so important is because we're modeling for people that although you can be extremely different from somebody, it doesn't mean you don't have common ground. It doesn't mean you can't sit and communicate. It doesn't mean you can't learn from one another. Um, you know, like he was saying, not only am I a police officer, but I'm also 6'3 and bald. So, I'm kind of an intimidating police officer on top of it all. And if you didn't know me and you just based it off what I look like, you could have a lot of wrong preconceived notions. Well, guess what police officers do? They do the exact same thing to black people. They walk up to a black person who may be in a car with big rims and rap music blaring, and they may have dreads, and they immediately come up with a narrative about this person that may or may not be wrong, but chances are it's probably wrong. And that isn't right. You have to treat people at an individual level and get to know them. And if they prove worthy, then they're worthy. If they turn out to actually be a terrible person, then you've done your research. Now you know. But I've learned a ton of stuff from Black. Um, and that's my whole goal, actually, is uh, to learn from him and to learn about even just simple things like rap music and Black culture and all of those things. Because I'm ignorant to all of it. I'm, I'm a very white person. I've, I grew up very white. I grew up with all the white privilege in the world. Um, I grew up in a town with literally no black people. Um, there was maybe three black families total in the town that I grew up in. Um, 
And like I said before, I think one of the most disenfranchised segments of our society is the African-American community, and it pisses me off. The reason I became a police officer is to help people who need help, and I want to help the people who need the most help. And I think the black community needs the most help. And like I said, the only way I can help them is to learn from them and to learn about them. And that's why black and I have become friends. And I'm very grateful for the friendship because it's my opportunity to learn. And I've learned 10 times more from him than he's learned from me, I think. Um, You know, part of white privilege is I don't have to learn about the African-American community if I don't want to. I have absolutely no reason that I need to learn about black community. Black people don't have that privilege. They have to learn about the white community because they're victimized by them constantly. So they need to learn. They need to have a better understanding of white people than white people have of black people. Um, So I think because of that, I benefit from our friendship far more than he does. But that's just a personal opinion. Has there ever been anything that has been difficult uh, to talk about with each other? Not really. Um, the, The wonderful thing is where we're similar is that we're both extremely curious and open-minded and both of us do not care what the right answer is. We want to know as best as we can figure what truth looks like in, in all forms, whether it's policing or race or religion or whatever, we just want to know as best as we can figure out what the right answer is, but we don't care what the right answer looks like. So because of that, because that's our approach to things, we're both extremely honest and we don't get offensive. Um, we're, you know, we can we can communicate openly without any offense taken because we're just trying to learn. We're trying to learn from one another. We're trying to figure out what is. And that's a very honest way to live. And it eliminates a lot of these discomforts and a lot of these arguments because it's not about being right. Black's not trying to prove to me that the black community has been disenfranchised and it's the police's fault. And I'm not trying to prove to him that policing is just and perfect and that we haven't done those things we're trying to figure out what is mm-hmm. and we're doing it together and we're doing it from different perspectives and that lends itself to very open honest easy communication um in the course of our podcast there probably will come a time where we very much disagree about something but i don't think it's going to be contentious at all because of our quest for truth and these things also don't live in a vacuum so i'm sure that these conversations have affected your work as a police officer do you know specifically in what ways you've changed as a cop through your conversations with with Blackline? Yeah, uh, this is a very silly example, but it's only silly to people who aren't white. Like the black people that hear this are going to laugh when I say this, but white (laughs) people are actually going to be like, oh yeah, that's something I didn't realize either. So just very simple things. So, you know, there's all, we see in the media, all these instances, and I've seen it ever since I've become a cop. This is new to the media. This isn't new to my experience. This happens all the time. White people love to call black, call the police on black people for being black. And there's certain things about black culture that absolutely terrify white people. And it's, it's ingrained in us through the system and through the media to fear them. And there's certain things in particular that I'm here to tell you, the vast majority of white people absolutely fear. Two of those things are the do rag and dreadlocks. You see those two things, and white people just shudder in fear, and it's just because of our conditioning. Well, I never knew the purpose of a do-rag. I never knew that there's an actual purpose behind it. They're not wearing it to look edgy and cool. They're wearing it because their hair is very difficult, and it's a massive pain in the ass when their hair gets wet. 
And so that's the purpose behind it. And in talking to our producer, Antoine, and, uh, and Blackline, I learned that some black people, because they don't want to look like a criminal, and I use, I'm using that in quotations, when they go into convenience stores, they'll actually take their do-rag off because they understand that white people see that and are afraid. And that's another example of how black people have to understand white people, but we don't have to understand them. Um, so when I, and, but in learning that, I discovered in myself that I too would look at a do-rag and immediately think criminal. Even I, you know, with all my good intentions, had that preconceived notion. But now I understand what a do-rag is, and I understand there's a purpose behind it. And it eliminated my fear immediately. Immediately. I'm, I am a much better person for, for having met Thomas because I'm learning about him, and I'm learning about his culture. And this, if you want to lessen your fear of something, get to know it. If you're, if you're terrified of terrorists and Muslims, go make a Muslim friend. You're terrified of gay people. Go meet a gay person. And immediately, your fear is going to be less because you're going to understand them and you're going to have an understanding. And that's all fear is, is a lack of understanding. What about you, Blackline? Is, uh, how has your opinions of cops changed having uh, had these conversations with Blue Line? Uh, the conversations with Blue Line. Uh, my observation of cops, they haven't changed just yet because I have... He, he's just one of the few, you know, that I've met that is different from what I see on a normal basis, you know. Uh, I, I'm still seeing black people murdering the streets on a daily basis uh, from cops. So my view has not changed. And now that's what I'm hoping from this podcast that will change. I'm hoping that uh, a lot of people will listen to the podcast and realize that there is a cop that is willing to speak on these things. Uh, but my views as a for cops has not changed just yet because uh, of the the mass majority being killed uh, by cops and there's nothing done about that. Uh, they 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 walk squeaky clean. So my views really haven't changed just yet. Yeah. I mean, you know, the experience that you had throughout your life is is vastly different from the experience that the blue line had and, and the experience that I've had in my life. Um, it, what's something that you wish more white people understood about uh, the experience of growing up in as an African-American in this country that you don't think most white people understand? The, the circumstance that was put up against us uh, when you start from slavery and you have slave, you got you got slavery, you got slave codes, you got Jim Crow, you got civil rights, uh, you have the crack epidemic, you have uh, the, the three strike laws. It's just it's so many things that were just set up against black people that I wish white people were on and realize that this was set up against black people and that they was calculated of how they act now in 2018. And that white people need to realize that 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 is their issue. Um, and I said it before, Tupac said it best that America eats its own babies, and that's what we're literally seeing right now with the whole black community. I know that a lot of people, white people, like to bring up black on black crime, but if you pollute the, if I pollute a neighborhood with bad food, drugs, and guns knowing that they don't have the resources to even get those things, 
because black people don't own planes, black people don't own ships, black people don't own any type of food. So how are they even getting these type of things in their environment? If I pollute, if I if I give that environment, uh, you know, bad food, guns, and drugs, eventually they kill themselves. So I feel like white people need to own up and realize that 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 this is their issue and they need to be responsible for it. So that's just something that I would wish that white people would do. Yeah, and I would piggyback off that and completely agree with them. Um, the reason, you know, that I ever reached out to him in the first place is because the Trump administration has made it very obvious how systemic racism is. They, they don't even make any bones about it. They are just so over the top. And if white people aren't waking up and realizing now what we've done to African-Americans in this country and how, how calculated it has truly been, they're never going to get it. And that's, you know, as far as police and black culture goes, you know, the black culture screaming, you don't understand us, you don't understand us. And the police scream back, well, you don't understand policing, you don't understand policing, you don't understand use of force. And there's just nobody will give an inch to try to understand the other person. And in one of our episodes of the Blurred Line podcast, I pointed out that it is not on the, it, it is not it's not on them to understand police. It's on policing to understand the black community. We voluntarily did this. We took an oath to serve people. So the impetus is on us to understand them and not vice versa. And that's what I've done. I've taken a step to do that. And and we hope to model that. We hope other people will do that. But what white people need to understand is they just need to understand the black perspective and the black experience and understand how calculated it is. And like I said, Trump is just a microscope of that, I think. And he's just, it's just become so overt in your face that it sickens me. What, uh, what response have you gotten to your podcast so far and these conversations that you have? Have you heard from people who have listened to them? Yeah, hey, Black, correct me if I'm wrong. I think black people like it more than white people. I Which, agree. Uh, I, yeah. I think it's kind of unfortunate, actually. Um, and uh, before before we even started, I told Blue, I was like, I'm probably going to receive most of the flat because I'm talking to a white cop. And like I said, in my neighborhood, that's looked at as like being a snitch or me being a sellout or something like that. But um, a lot of black people receive it more uh genuinely than a lot of a lot of white people uh i i have had some white people that i'm cool with reach out to me and say that they love conversation even the people that i work with a lot of white people i even told blue this i was like man it was some people at work they were like they're gonna listen to the podcast i was like oh man i'm a little worried but then they came back to me and said that they loved it and things like that so that opened my eyes up too it make me realize that yo, this podcast could be something bigger than just me and him. Um, but I do think black people receive it more better than white people. But that's, I think that's just because a lot of white people ain't probably heard it yet. Well, and I think a lot of white people don't need to hear it. Like, white people don't have to fight for anything. White people don't have to fight for understanding. White people don't have to scream till they're blue in the face to be heard. Um, so they, that's privilege. That's white privilege. White, white people don't need this message. Um, black, yeah. people, black people are dying, literally dying, to be understood and to be heard. Yeah. yeah. And so when a guy like me, who is not only a police officer, but white as can be, there's just a few people as white as I am. I mean, I've got zero rhythm. I can't dance. I don't <laughs> rap music. 
Um, <laughs> just white. Like, I'm just bright, bright white. And I'm bald on top of it. When someone like me listens and hears, it's a massive relief, I think. And, and I need to, you know, white people need to stand up and speak for black people because black people have been speaking for black people for all of history and a lot of good it's done them. Now, it has done some good. I mean, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, there's been some very impactful folks. But white people need to get on the bandwagon and we need to help, you know, who listens to white people, other white people. So yeah. there needs to be more white voices. And every time that a black person speaks up, he's looked at as uh, a person, like a bad person, like Kaepernick. Yeah. Uh, even Martin, even Martin Luther King at the time, he was looked at as a person who 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 was horrible to society. But now, you know, fifty years later, people want to give him Martin Luther King Day when they were the same people that murdered him. Uh, yeah. So th- that's something that white people just once again need to own up to. Uh, you know, Ali, he was he was a person that would want to fight in white people's wars because he said that this country had did nothing for him, and which was true. But now. Nowadays, that people want to praise Ali for the stand-up guy he was, but yeah, you have a guy named Kaepernick who who is literally doing the same thing, but you turn him down and, and you don't realize what he's kneeling for, and he's showing you because people call him the N-word for kneeling. Well, that's what he's kneeling for, and if you miss that, I feel like you have it's got to be something mentally wrong with you. So I feel like there's got to be something that. In, in the majority of the white community, there's got to there needs to be a mental check because every time that a white shooting happens, they 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 point that out that that person was mentally ill. So maybe there's a mentally ill syndrome going on in the white community that needs to be checked. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think Kaepernick's the best example. I mean, he's a he's the black guy that tried to have a peaceful voice, and all he did. Yeah, was, and, 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 and they white hate people him. always say. Oh, he got why can't they be of... peaceful? Why can't they? Why can't they do it quietly? And he did it quietly, and they still tore him down. Yeah, and but meanwhile, there's been a handful of white players who have have knelt in support of Kaepernick, and they're still in the league, and nobody bats an eye. Yeah. Oh, well, you 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 talking about the t- the Tebow thing, right? I didn't even well, know about Tebow, that. but there's there were uh, um, there was a player on the Eagles. Um, can't think of who it is, but. White people can kneel on behalf of black people, and nobody cares. But the second a black person does it, everybody's offended, and they get kicked out of the league. And what I just found out, too, was, uh, Blue, that uh, I think before 2008 or 2009 or something like that, that most of the NFL players doing the national anthem was in the locker room. They was kept in the locker room. They didn't even come out for uh, the national anthem. So why is it a big concern now? And if we're going to make a big concern of that, we should make a big concern of the people who are holding the cameras, the concession stands that's going on, still doing the the national anthem, because uh, all that is still going on mm-hmm. when the national anthem is being sang. Uh, but everybody wants to point to the flag and everything like that. But when you're watching it from home, what are you doing? Are you standing up for the flag too? I'm pretty sure you're on your couch drinking a beer. You, you get what I'm saying? I don't yeah. think everybody's standing up from home talking about honoring the flag. Yeah. And it's weird that we even start games with the national anthem anyway. I mean, how many other things do we start the national anthem with? <laughs> Nothing else, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a very weird mix of like nationalism and sports and uh, I don't know. I don't get it. 
it's it very is. strange. Yeah. These conversations are so important, and I'm I'm just thrilled that the two of you are having these conversations together. And I really hope this continues and becomes something big because this is something that the country really needs right now. And I'm so glad that the two of you have gotten together to start this. We thank you because it was, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here. And and from just as a little side note about some some religious topics. Um, I really, as a Christian, as someone who was raised as a Christian and was raised to believe that Christ is what makes us moral and makes us pure, I love to meet lifelong atheists like you, Chris, because you're such a good dude. You're just, you're just, you just exude genuineness and decency, and you're a lifelong atheist. And from my perspective, growing up, you shouldn't exist. You should. People like you are impossible if the Christian <laughs> is true. And so, you know, you, you hit a niche in the atheist community that needed to be hit because atheists are so negative because a lot of us come from a religious background and we got a lot of baggage from Reed's yeah. anger and, and you have none of that. And your video, your documentary, A Better Life portrays that beautifully and it's exactly what we needed. And I absolutely adore it and love it. And uh, you're the reason and Cass Midgley with his podcast is the reason Thomas and I are even friends. Yeah. I agree, uh, and I just want to say, like, you, uh, Chris, were one of the first atheists that I met that I felt like was a genuine person, but you you, you introduced me to other genuine people who were atheists, just like Blue. Um, I never, I was, I was raised where I thought atheists were just, like, totally bad people, like, they were, like, they worked the devil or something, I didn't know what they believed. I didn't know they didn't believe in God. And, but now that I know that you guys are some of the most intellectual, most heartfelt people, and if I could meet more people like you guys, like you in blue, I think, man, I, I just think the world would be a better place, actually, because I feel like we try to portray that we love this so-called God of the Bible or whatever God you believe in, and that we dismiss everything else and we dismiss the people uh, that's out in the world uh, but you guys who are atheists you guys don't have to live up to that hype uh, and you guys are just genuine people so I appreciate that from both of you guys oh thank you so much that, <laughs> that really means a lot thank you and again thank you to Black Line and Blue Line and your podcast Blurred Lines and I'm so excited where things are going Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.